This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are more than a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. Social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas. The app also supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also recently opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is made up of 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Then you can get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover the fees for accounts valued at over $150. Valid for only U.S. residents 18 years and older and subject to account approval. For more information, see public.com disclosures. Hey everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here from your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And in this episode, I am joined by a very special guest who has been an early backer of companies in our space like Chime, Phoenix, Plaid, Gusto, and many others. Uh, he's also known to do much better than me at Blackjack in Vegas for Money 2020. Uh, Satya Patel of Homebrew is here to answer all of my burning questions about fintech. Satya, thank you so much for being here. So happy to be here, Julie. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Um, that I could do like 10 of these different podcasts with you because there's so much that we can dive into and you're such an expert on this space from an early st um, stage side too. So I guess stuff that has been happening over the past year, initially when COVID happened, a lot of the funding sort of dried up. People were kind of waiting it out, thinking we could do in-person pitch meetings again in just a few weeks. And obviously that has changed and funding in particular for the early stage that you guys focus on has been pretty crazy the last uh, six to 12 months. When deals are closing so quickly on some of these hot startups, how do you even find time to do due diligence? And what sort of advice do you have out there for people that might be listening that are trying to be either angel or early um, stage investors to try to get stuff done before? Sorry, it's too late. The round's closed. We already got it filled. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. It's just crazy the amount of interest in fintech financial services right now. Uh, you know, it wasn't that popular a few years ago. And now every angel, every seed fund, every venture fund has their fintech partner who focuses on the sector. Uh, we'll see if that plays out well or not. Uh, but in the meantime, it's creating a, a fast pace in the environment for sure. Um, the advice I'd have for folks probably boils down to a handful of things. First, you have to know what game you're playing, right? Are you trying to be a high velocity, high volume investor? Or are you trying to be concentrated and deeply convicted or something in between? I think you just need to be able to answer that question for yourself first and foremost, because then that dictates the second important thing, which is what deal press process do you want to run to win that game, right? Uh, for us at Homebrew, we're trying to be that deeply convicted, 
investor of record for just a small number of companies each year. And so we also have a small fund. And so the approach we take is we don't need to be in every great company. We just need to be in our fair share. And we really want to have trusted relationships with the founders that we back. And that can only be done uh, over a certain time frame. And sometimes that means we can't move fast enough for uh, a deal that's going super fast. But that's okay, too, because that founder doesn't place the same importance on the relationship that we necessarily uh, do. Um, so that's how we think about that piece of it. And then the last thing, which is important, especially in fintech, is there's really no substitute for doing the work, right? So we do a lot of work up front to f have a prepared mind for the areas within fintech that we're in interested in and um, have conviction about. And then when we meet a team, we're prepared to do more references than we've historically done. Um, and do them fast. And we also have been spending more time with the part members of the team who are not the founders uh, to try to get to know a broader segment of the team better uh, in hopes of uh, allowing us to get more comfortable. Because generally speaking, at the seed stage, which is where we focus, it's pre-product. And so we're really betting on the team, the market, and the product vision. There's no data. So the team is the one thing we can't get wrong. And we're just trying to compress the amount of time that we spend getting to know that team into a shorter period so we can react to how fast the market's moving. That's awesome. Um, I can actually relate to this a little bit more than I could have a year ago, just given that I was um, helping out another early stage fund over the summer. And a lot of the stuff that they had me working on was that sort of pre any sort of pitch thing, just getting really up to date on what's going on in the payment space, what's going on in like all these different sectors of fintech, just so then once you do have a company come up, it's really easy to get them an answer within 24 to 48 hours, even at sometimes because the round is closing that quickly. It's a, you know, hot YC deal and you've got to get in there. Yeah, you have to be ready to make a decision. And so the only work you can do, generally speaking, is on the market and understanding what pain points exist, how urgent they are, how broadly that pain is felt, who the likely buyers are at this moment in time, and who's going to wait until more is proven, all those kinds of things. Uh, what are the regulatory and compliance dynamics? Um, but all that work can be done around specific areas of fintech before you meet any team in any uh, particular product that they might be working on. And so we just work really hard to have that prepared mind. Yeah. What's the, Just curious, what's the fastest you've ever had to close a deal before? That's a good question. The fastest deal we've ever had to close is probably three days. Okay. Uh, so enough where like you could, us. right, enough where you could still do an interview or two and get some time to go through some stuff, but you definitely wanted to go into it with some background knowledge in order to, to truly evaluate it. Yeah. And I think that's a situation where we were able to do three meetings with the founders uh, complete a half a dozen market references um, based on the relationships we already had, and then negotiate the deal, um, you know, all within a three-day time frame. Right, right. Now, you mentioned founders quite a bit, and I recognize just how important that is, and that we're at a place where there's a lot of later stage companies in our space. So Stripe, SoFi, Credit Karma, et cetera. And there's people that are leaving these companies and starting their own. So there's a lot of really experienced founders out there starting new projects. What are some of the key things that make one of them stand out to you guys? Yeah, I think it's true in fintech, especially that we really want founders who have a unique insight around how the world should operate based on their firsthand experience. Right. And then importantly, 
if they're coming from a larger company, that experience is valuable. But we really try to dig into what success did they deliver within the context of that organization. Um, and as you know, there's so much nuance in fintech and so much know-how that's required to be successful. We really want to uh, dig into, you know, what are the things they learned from that experience? Um, and especially what mistakes did they make? And what lessons do they take from those mistakes? So a lot of it is really digging into the founder's background and why they're focused on the problem that they're focused on now based on their prior experience. The second thing we're looking for is we want people who are insatiable learners, right? We often say like within 90 days after making an investment, we generally know if a company is going to fail or not because we know how quickly the team's learning. Uh, that's not exactly accurate, but it's pretty directionally correct, I'd say. Um, so we're really trying to make that judgment ahead of time is how fast and how interested is this team in learning. Um, the next thing we're, that's important to us, I'd say, is people who others want to follow, right? Like, so it's always a good sign when the founder uh, is able to attract other people that they've worked with um, and are incredible storytellers um, because they can attract that talent. And that probably means they can attract investors and partners and customers um, and all the other stakeholders that are important to the success of a business. Um, and then finally, tied to kind of learning, we do want customer uh, people who have that insight um, about the market that, that they're addressing, but they have a strong hypothesis uh, that they want to test, right, based on that insight that they have and are flexible enough in their thinking to react to data. Um, so uh, it's a combination of uh, the right attitude um, tied with the right aptitude um, is what we're looking for. And that's true in fintech, but true more generally in every area that we invest in. Yeah. And one company that you actually recently invested in that comes to mind when you're talking about all of this with a founder that has previous experience and has this big thesis that they want to test is Aurum. Um, you know, Stephanie Kirkpatrick was one of the leaders over at LearnVest, which was sold, one of the first fintech companies to have a really good exit. Um, and now they're testing this big theory around real-time payments, which is a huge pain point and no one's really been able to make it work quite yet. So I'm, I'm assuming that that played a really big role in you guys backing that company. Absolutely. Stephanie is the perfect example of a founder that meets all those criteria that I outlined. She knows the industry, has experienced the pain firsthand, is incredibly curious and interested in learning, just somebody who people gravitate towards. Uh, and want to work with. Um, she's got a very de well-defined point of view around how the world should exist and uh, is willing to uh, test her hypotheses around that and learn quickly. And she's just a wonderful human being who you want to root for and see, be, see be successful. So we couldn't be more excited to be involved with her and the team at Orem. Yeah, no, I've, I've met her a couple of times just through Zoom, given that I, I was only introduced to her during this whole pandemic thing. But she, she seems like a great person, and I, I'm anxious to meeting her face-to-face -face once that time has come, which is, we were both talking before this. We have received our second doses of the vaccine, so hopefully sooner rather than later we can start doing those things again. Um, okay, so the next part here, I want to uh, talk about two different things. It's one question, but two-part question. 
over and underrated themes in fintech. Let's do overrated first because I find this one fun. There's a lot of different areas that everybody's hyped about and I love having people come in and be like, oh no, like bank is, as a service, that's stupid. That's not gonna happen and whatever it might be. So let's do overrated first for the next couple of minutes and we will wrap up on underrated areas that you are super excited about and looking for new opportunities in. Isn't everything in fintech overrated right now? <laughs> Uh, no, one of the things that I think is overrated is, uh, data APIs kind of plaid for everything. Um, that's a big one too. Cause there's a lot of companies saying like, oh yeah, this is the next big thing. Just like flat, find the plaid for this, the plaid for Y, the plaid for Z, like it's all out there. When it, I, I think I actually did a post on this about a month ago saying like maybe the plaid for everything is just plaid. Yeah. I think we certainly feel that way as investors in plaid, but, um, I think there's a big difference between Plaid, which is kind of table stakes for every fintech company out there because they're the infrastructure for uh, OAuth into the bank account, which is what's required of every application versus uh, a segment of data that is probably less useful uh, for a lot of companies and maybe useful for some um, and doesn't provide the same moat and stickiness necessarily that a Plaid does. and so. There's lots of activity in this area, and I'm, there's no doubt some of these companies will be successful, but we're trying to think about the companies that help define an industry, and uh, it's hard to envision any of these companies having the impact that Plaid has had on the industry. Yeah. What about, is that, um, you said that everything in fintech is overrated. What about, what's the second one, if you had to mention, that you think is also overrated? Uh, I go back and forth on this one because I definitely appreciate the value long term, but I think it's overhyped right now, which is alternative asset investing. Okay, interesting. Uh, is there a specific type of alternative asset investing that you find most overrated? Uh, of course, right now in this moment, I have to say NFTs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. I, I think there's definitely a use case around here, but people are just like Jack selling a tweet people's artwork, people just making random ones for who knows what. Feels a little bit like that big ICO bubble that we had a few years ago. Yeah, I do think that there's really interesting and powerful use cases for NFTs in the long run. Um, but the NFT use case that has uh, caught fire right now around collectibles is one that I'm less excited about. Got it. All right, so we've talked about what you're less excited about. Let's do two things that you were very excited about. Um, you touched on... Forum, and one of the things we're definitely excited about is money movement, uh, both making it faster and making it less expensive. A lot of the uh, fintech services you see out there are working around the fact that it takes a long time to make, uh, move money and that it's expensive to move money. And it's kind of crazy that you and I as consumers have to pay to access our own money and wait to access our own money. And so uh, we're big believers that there's an enormous opportunity around money movement and you know orm is one example of company of a company trying to tackle that yeah it makes a lot of sense because even i mean if someone goes to cash out their venmo or cash app account to move that money into their bank it's like wait a few days or you can pay a fee and transfer it instantly and from what I've gathered researching this topic, it seems like it'll never go to completely zero, but there's the fees that are currently being charged just seem to be way too high for what we really should be at in this stage. Um, and, you know, the Fed has been working on real-time payments for a while, but it doesn't seem like anyone's truly 
adopting it and it's moving really slow, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, FedWire and FedNow are all attempts to make this uh, a better process. And there's a number of reasons that we won't dive into that those things haven't gotten the adoption that uh, they could have. And it definitely feels like in a lot of different areas that this is going to be solved by a private company, not by government. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, for one, would love to be able to get transferred my half of the rent more quickly on Venmo versus waiting two or three days to get that that money. Although my rent in Austin will be much less than what it is in New York, so that's a bonus. Um, so second theme that you are most excited about in fintech and potentially looking for new investments in. Yeah, it might be surprising to hear given our investment in Chime, but we're very interested in affinity-based banking. Uh, one of the things that was the key insight for Chime was the audience that they focused on, which was kind of the middle American living hand-to-mouth, uh, which a lot of other folks didn't appreciate. And in the same way, we think there are uh, sub-segments of the population with unique financial needs who can be serviced by a bank built for them. And so really interested in that idea, but we're really looking for banks that are not just targeting those segments from a marketing perspective, but really offering uh, unique financial products that are uh, specifically geared towards those populations and the needs that they have. Yeah, I know a few people that made investments in Daylight, uh, an affinity-based bank, like you mentioned, for the LGBTQ community. Um, Did you guys invest in that one or have you made any investments in this space yet? We have not yet. Okay, but you're actively looking. So if someone listening to this has a an idea for that community or maybe freelancers or, I mean, are there certain demographics you think are most likely to see um, a lot of interest in here? I'll tell you one that we're particularly interested in is teachers. Interesting. Why? Um, teachers have a lot of unique needs, um, particularly in uh, high cost of living areas. Um And as you know, many teachers are also funding some of their school supplies and those things out of pocket as well. And so there's just uh, a set of problems that teachers deal with that a lot of other people don't. And we think that there are definitely products and services that um, are not made available to them that could be um, if you approach uh, underwriting risk differently and if you develop new products that were geared towards some of those specific needs. It's a massive population. And what would be more rewarding than servicing a group of people who are educating the next generation? So there's a bunch of reasons we're excited about uh, a bank geared towards them. Very cool. And I I have not heard of a, a an affinity based bank focusing on them yet, but there there might be one in stealth that listens to this and they hit you up, um, which they I can do. So. Your Twitter handle is what? It's Satya P. Correct. That's right. So at Satya P. On Twitter, you guys can get a hold of him there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, that is it for today's episode, though. Uh, you can join me again on Thursday when Koki Haziotis of Lasagna Technology is back with us. Satya, thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Greenberg. That's the first time I've got to say that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the last time I think we saw each other face-to-face was when you were watching my Zoom wedding. <laughs> crazy. Crazy, crazy. All right, bye, guys. Take care.